or there's a natural resistance to. And so there's, there's a freedom that comes with just hanging out with knees that hurt. And the freedom, the freedom is, is that one doesn't need to be frightened by that or to be bullied by it or pushed around by it. It's okay. We can experience that. It's not a problem. So pain is something that we can take as a curse and something we can take as a teacher, something that we can use as an opportunity to to open our hearts to something which is difficult. But when there's pain, I think one of the things that's important to to look at is that, well, one thing is is that, that pain comes as a response to things. And there's pain, actually, some kinds of pain is a real powerful messenger. And so we have this understanding in meditation, sometimes we have this feeling of, we can just block out the pain and get to my meditation, I'll be doing all right. And we do that with physical pain, and we do that with the pain in our heart. So meditation then becomes this systematic way of total dissociation from life. And we can manage that usually for some period of time, and then usually something explodes. <laughs> Which is not a, not a bad thing, but it becomes beyond our control. And so learning how to open up to that which is difficult and that which is frightening and that which is unpleasant is part of what the work we're doing here and it's not it's not inspiring work I mean it's, that's not the kind of stuff that one gets all jazzed up about um, but it is very powerful work and very uh, liberating because when we're able to live in the world in a way where we're not frightened and we're not pushed around by fear and we don't resist to pain, then it gives us the courage to stand and face whatever it is that we need to face. And that's a wonderful freedom. And there are times when it might actually make a difference. One of the um, images that I have uh, indelibly marked in my, my heart when I first was introduced to Buddhism, to meditation, was at UC Santa Cruz, as I mentioned, in 1979. And I just wandered into this class, and the class was taught by a man by the name of Jack Engler. And um, Jack, he was a wonderful teacher. I mean, he's very, very clear and very... Uh, um, gifted in his ability to explain things. But what I really loved about him even more than his ability to explain and articulate the concepts was his kindness and his compassion. And so I had this very profound feeling that he was, he would answer human beings rather than questions. You know, he would get underneath the question and actually touch the person. And so when I was just, you know, in a university lecture hall, you know, my whole world system was kind of realigning in order to accommodate not only ideas and concepts, but also a human being who had the ability to live like that. And so it was, it was clear from that, from the very beginning, that, that, that the Dharma was like the central part of my life. It was the most important part of my life. But I was a young person, I was just 17 years old, you know. I didn't know or have a feeling of what the form of it would be or how it would unfold. And when I was also in that same year, I, was, I had another class with another professor, Herman Blake. And Herman Blake was this big man, big tall black man from Harden. And he used to have this big booming voice and he'd tell stories. And everyone loved to listen to Professor Blake's stories. He was a fabulous storyteller, and there was a there was a passion in his blood that he would he would have when he would start talking stories about how things were and, and what it was like to live. And he was a professor of sociology and talked about Malcolm X and the whole uh, situation with uh, civil rights and Martin Luther King and all of this. And there was this, this sense of of 
fervor, passion in, in, his, in his voice and in his posture. And I remember sitting and listening to Herman speak, and then I go and talk and listen to Jack speak, and the two of them to me were like um, mirroring images somehow. One was like passionately involved in the world because it hurt too much not to be. And the other one was like silently and effortlessly being drawn to something because he felt the inherent goodness in it. And to me, these two uh, characters became like a, a symbolic representation of, of different ways that our effort manifests. Sometimes we do things because it hurts too much not to. And sometimes we do things because we're drawn by the light, by the goodness, and it's effortless. And they're, they're together. Sometimes there's one more than the other, and sometimes the, the other is stronger. But these two forces in, in, in seem to reappear periodically in life and help us get through times that are difficult and help us open to things which, are, which aren't easy or, or give us the strength to go through challenges. So in that, that first few weeks of that class with Jack and with Herman, I had a vision of being a nun. And I'd never never met one before. I'd never seen one. I'd never heard of Buddhist nuns. I didn't have a clue where they were, what it meant, or where to find any. But there was a very strong vision that I had of, of being of being a nun. And later I found out that that happened at this, in the same month that the, the sisters were first taking their eight precept ordination at Chitters. But I, I didn't know that, of course, until after I arrived, long after I arrived at the monastery. So there was this, this aspiration, and to me the aspiration was, I didn't know what it meant or the form or the rules or any of it, but to me it was a, a representation of dedication of one's life force to the realization of truth. And so this vision kept coming up as something that had a real strong meaning to me, a strong pull. And I had, you know, a fair amount of, of my own uh, stuff to sort out, a normal 17-year-old person, in terms of relationship stuff and family stuff and sorting out a livelihood and all the rest of it. But this image kept on coming back as, as, as an image of, 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 of someone who had dedicated their life to the realization of truth and as something worthy and worthwhile to do. And then, and then throughout the, the years, um, as my own life story unfolded, there were times when the image would come back and reappear. And so that, like the sense of the commitment that Dharma was central, that I never doubted, not from, the, not from the very beginning. That was always clear to me. And I used to, like, speak sometimes of that the university was my monastery. You know, that, that that was the context in which I practiced. That was the context in which there was growth and learning. And, and I could see that the form was the situation that I found myself in and that learning about life and letting go and learning about attachment and the challenges were manifesting in every situation with all the people that I knew and that that was the context and that was the form and so that was in fact that was my monastery and then and then there were times that came up when life was particularly difficult or things were particularly challenging and then this you know the feeling would come up well you know, to hell with it, I'm just going to go be a nun. And, and as I was describing earlier today in, in, in our group this afternoon, there was, some, there was a voice of wisdom that would arise when that happened. And the voice of wisdom would say, no, you ain't. You know, it's n this is never going to work if you're going to do this in response to running away from anything. It's just not, it's not, that's just not possible. It won't work. 
And so when things were difficult and I wanted to split, you know, just hung out with it and found my way in the difficulties to find a natural resolution in the particular situation. And I've, I've never regretted the, um, the caring or the time of taking things through to their e- a natural ending point and having some sense of, of, of proper finish. It's always left me feeling like I've had no regret to do that. And so, along with this class and this image or this vision of being, being a nun, there were also many stories of these wonderful people who, who lived in, in the East. I heard stories of Ajahn Shah. I heard stories of Ajahn Sumedha. I heard stories about this wonderful woman by the name of Deepma, who was this, um, um, she was born in Calcutta. No, she was born in Bangladesh. She was a Chittagong woman who then lived in in, uh, in India, in Calcutta. And and so there was like this this longing or this sense of wanting to wanting to go on pilgrimage, wanting to make a journey and, and meet some of these characters and maybe ask them some questions or, or spend some time in meditation and uh, enjoy their presence. And so all these these aspirations were 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 registered, but with, you know, university and then working afterwards and then all of that, it took many years for the, for the culmination of that to ripen and to be able to do that. And so nine years later, it, it turned out I was able to go on pilgrimage, this journey, go on this journey to India. And it wasn't an easy uh, decision to go because the the person who was my partner at the time was somebody who I loved very very dearly he was somebody who I'd known since I was 14 years old and had uh, just a very loving and very lovely relationship and when I just had the feeling of just loving him as much as it's humanly possible to love someone you know that it wasn't more love wasn't possible and yet there was always this sense or this feeling in my heart that I had to go. I had to go. It wasn't a question that I w- wanted to. It was I had to go. And I, I couldn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. It wasn't like there wasn't anything wrong with the person or with the relationship. You know, there, there was nothing wrong. There was no good reason. But I had to go. And I knew that. And bless he knew that as well so he was very very supportive and that I think you know thinking back was one of the most difficult decisions that I made leaving a warm safe friendly loving situation dispersing all my belongings buying a one-way ticket into this total mysterious place off into the Netherlands by myself with no clear date of return. Bye. And I think it's, it's you know, this kind of pilgrimage is actually, um, if people are able to do that, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing for the heart to be able to set out on a journey without knowing what is going to happen, how long you're going to be away for and whether or not you're actually going to make it back. So I split with everybody's blessed best wishes. A few tears from a few folk, myself included. And off I went. And I, I went to... Um, I landed in Nepal and then, and then uh, went... Uh, about Gaia. Incidentally, the the retreat, the last retreat I was on was here at the Angela Center. And that was when I made the decision to leave, just after that. And my friend, my partner, and my mother were here on that retreat with me, 1987, I think it was. I'm not sure. So I have some pretty strong roots to this place. It was a place of beginnings, and it was a place where decision to uh, leave also took place. It was a, 
it gave me the it gave me the courage to the meditation retreat gave me the courage to actually trust that even though I couldn't explain rationally why I needed to go, that it was something that I could trust and to just go for it. So I did. I went for it. And and we were we were talking about this in the group today, but um, it's it's actually. It's an interesting thing that happens when you're traveling on your own in a foreign culture because even though I had, it's not like traveling for me um, was something that I felt uncomfortable with, but there's, your, when your sense of self is not being recreated by the people around you or the circumstances around you or the situation around you, there's a certain kind of like disintegration process that takes place. And it's, I think it's, it's actually one of the reasons why traveling can be a very fruitful experience for people, is that it, in the right situation and with the right attitude, one, it helps one really to reflect on this whole question of, well, who am I? Because you're, you're in a culture where the values are different and the, and the code of ethics is different and the cultural norms are different, and, and most of the things that we take ourselves to be are, are different. And so, and so that sense of, of well, who, who am I then is very much questioned. And if you're in a situation like I was, where there wasn't a particular person who was around to help reinforce that or to uh, make it solidify or concrete or to remind, well, remember, you, you actually are this person, you know. You've got these problems and you've got these hang-ups and you've got these, remember? <laughs> Nobody's doing that. You know, all you have is this constant changing scenery of people who have a very different uh, attitude and relationship with life. And so one's um, sense of self is constantly disintegrating, constantly disintegrating. And that's actually a very powerful and very worthwhile aspect of, of, of going on a pilgrimage, going on a journey in the right measure. Some people go to India and they have to get scooped up and sent back on a plane because they take that process a little bit too far. <laughs> and they, they just totally fall to pieces. So everything in the right measure. So I had, I had, uh, I'd been in Asia for several months. And, and when I was in, uh, in Bodh Gaya, on this, uh, there were two 10-day retreats in Gaya that Christopher Titmus was leading. And then I knew Deepama was in Calcutta, so I went to go find Deepama, this little old um, Bangladeshi woman. And I remember going into the Mahabodhi Society and just sitting down in the shrine room, and there, there were a whole bunch of people, and there were a few monks doing some chanting, and Manindraji was talking. And there was this tiny little waif of a little old lady sitting a few feet away from me. And there was this huge sense of stillness around her. And I thought, goodness me, I wonder who that is. And sure enough, that ended up being Dikuma, this person who I'd heard about nine years before. So there were a number of us uh, Western friends who had been on this retreat together. And uh, we, we spent... Uh, the days in, in the Mother Teresa's um, uh, destitute and dying and homes. And then in the evening time, we'd walk across town and we'd, we'd hang out with Deepama and, and bathe in her, her presence. And this was somebody who gave me the feeling I've, I've never felt so powerfully before, being in the presence of somebody who was like a just this huge, expansive, vast, deep ocean. It was just endless. And so still. And so quiet. And yet, so loving. I mean, it wasn't like a, I don't want to know from you, kind of. It was a totally loving, embracing kind of a presence. And so I, I felt 
like I, I said, you know, that if my journey had ended there, it would have been enough just to have met her. And meeting a person like that, it rekindled my own feelings of, well, in fact, part of the reason why I was on this journey was to look at this whole question of what it means to dedicate one's life to truth. And so seeing her and seeing that she was a manifestation of that, an embodiment of that, touched and stirred and moved me very deeply. Very deeply. And so, like having the presence, I mean, even if it's just only having been in the presence of a person for a short time, somebody who's so vast and so profoundly loving, it's like, you know, when things get difficult and one's having a hard time connecting with, you know, a sense of of love and kindness in oneself, one can remember this other person who embodied such an enormous, expansive state. It's like there wasn't anything that she wouldn't have been able to accept in me. Nothing. And just to have that image that, that, and have, the, have the, the blessing of being in contact with somebody like that, then when things were difficult in myself, I could remember her and bring her in my heart and allow that quality of loving kindness to touch my heart and to touch my own little difficulties. And so there was an external reminder that I could internalize. And that was always very useful to have. And so as a, as a blessing, just as a, as a marker, as a, as a representation of, of what living this life can be about, it was very powerful just to meet her. So I had a, I had a, um, a three-month visa to spend at the Mahasi Center, and having spent four months in Asia, I I got to a place where um, it's like the more you under, the more you 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 knew about the culture, the less you understood. There was this the disintegration process had set in in full force and and I felt very discombobulated and that was coupled with a very strong sense of, of a, a spring fever so I had this three month visa and I knew that if I went to this intensive retreat center I was going to die <laughs> and that wasn't going to work so I thought well the best thing to do is just to get some of this energy out of my system and, and and to just go romp around a bit. So I, I went to Dharamsala through Delhi, which was 125 degrees, and headed up to the hills. Now, I didn't make myself very many promises when I left, but there, there were a few promises that I made. One promise that I made was, was that no matter what happened, I wouldn't come back until I knew it was time. And then the other promise was, was that no matter how much I wanted to, I wouldn't spend uh, time alone in the wilderness because even though it was something that I, I love to do here and I enjoy going on extensive backpacking trips by myself in the Sierras or my favorite occupation was to go get lost in the, in the woods and spend the rest of the day figuring out where I was scratched and covered in poison oak and happy as a lark I, I promised I couldn't do that in Asia it wasn't safe it just, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't be safe the perceptions of women are just too different so I, I went and, uh, and found a, a little Tibetan guest lodge, and there was a young man staying there. And you get you get very good in in this in this uh, uh, traveling alone business of developing your your sixth sense of whose people you can trust and whose people you can't trust. And in three seconds, you can size folk up. And so this 
gentleman, I could see very easily he was very trustworthy. So I asked if he'd like to join me on a little um, expedition up north of Dharamsala and to just go out for a couple nights. It was the couple nights before the full moon in May. And so um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama had been in retreat preparing for the Vesaka Puja celebrations, the celebrations of the Buddha's birth, death, and enlightenment day. And so we had hoped to just to go up for a few days and then come down and then be around for for the Dalai Lama to, to be in his presence for for Vesaka Puja. So up into the mountains, and it was wonderful. It was just glorious. The air was cool, and the fresh strawberries were delicious, and the goats and the streams and the fresh water. It was lovely. And so we camped out and under the nearly full moon and made our way down to the stream and doing as I loved best, getting lost. And off we were off the trail and down at the stream and had a, a little wash of our faces and a picnic. And we're coming back up the inside of this bowl. It, it was a very steep bowl. It was covered with very thick leaf stuff. And Brian, who I'd met the day before, didn't know me from nobody. He didn't know if I could climb. He didn't know anything about me, you know. So he climbed down this rock crevice and walked behind this uh, cave and to the back of this rock. And I climbed down and was looking in this cave and, and saying, Brian, did you notice there was a cave here? And uh, I don't remember if he said anything. Anyway, he wanted to know if I could, if I could climb up the rock on the side to the right. And I, you know, it was, it was no problem, it was easy. So as I was sitting there looking, I had my sunglasses on. I couldn't see anything in the cave. From the cave comes this noise. And it was an unbelievable noise. I've never heard anything like this noise before in my life. It was deafeningly loud. The whole ground shook. And it was a combination of a roar, a growl, and a snort. And from the cave comes running at me full speed a very large black bear. Now, one of the things which I've never told anybody else in the story, I don't know why I never did. I thought it was sounded too corny. <laughs> one of the things I is that when, when the bear's face was this far away from my face, I passed out. But before I passed out, I went for refuge. And so I blanked out and jumped back and got myself twisted around a branch. I don't know how the branch ended up being there, but the branch was there. And the bear was on top of me. So the, the next moment... Now, Brian is on the rock behind us watching all of this business. And for Brian, I was, I was invisible for the bear. The bear, my head was in his mouth, and he had his belly pressed completely against my back and he was around me, so I was totally invisible for the bear. And so I blanked out, and the next moment of consciousness was the moment of, of knowledge of total, complete fear. I mean, it was, there was no edge to it, there was no space around it, there was no boundary to it. <laughs> it was complete, absolutely complete. And then the next moment of consciousness, there was the knowledge, oh, there's no point in being afraid because you're going to die. And it wasn't a... I mean, it was just like a statement of fact, really. That was what was happening. And with the, that thought and the, and the knowing of the thought, there was a total relaxation, a total releasing. So the body went quiet, and the mind went pristinely quiet and was filled with this exquisite joy and luminosity. And so the body was... He's still chewing on my head. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's still there. Brian's still watching all of this, freaking out. <laughs> Poor lad. <laughs> so that there was this this pristine joy and, and in that joy there was a very clear discernment of body and mind 
So I could feel the physical element. I could feel the presence of the bear contacting me. I could feel his, his teeth in my head. I could feel the qualities of the mind. I could feel the attention. I could see the focus. I could see the interest, the curiosity, the joy. Mind and body were present. And yet what was predominant was the sense of, of luminosity, of light, of interest, of joy. And so the, the next moment of consciousness was a surprise to me because I, I, was, I, I was at peace. There wasn't a, that wasn't a problem. I was at peace. But there was a sound, the sound of Om that welled up inside of me. Now it was a surprise because at that point I had been practicing meditation for nine years. And on Vipassana retreats we don't practice with the sound of Om. That's just not one of the things that we did. And I mean, I had heard the sound of silence, and I had tasted awareness, and I knew the pureness of the heart. That, those were things that were familiar to me. But the sound of Om as a practice was not something that I ever had done. But it came up, the sound came up, and there was just the, the turning of the mind to t- attend to it. So there was attention and focus on the sound. Now, it wasn't an external sound. It was an internal one. And then the, the, the exact instant of the mind intention to turn, to rest on the sound of Om, was the moment that the bear released its grip and left. And as Brian says, reports from the rock above, he said that the bear jumped down the side of the mountain and he was spread eagle and slid on his belly for about 15 or 20 feet before he regained his feeding and ran away. So, I was uh, a bit bloody, a bit ripped up, a bit uh, dazed, but also um, I felt, even from like the first ten seconds, that I had somehow received a blessing, I had received a gift. I didn't understand what it was, but I felt like somehow I'd, I had just received a gift. So I said to Brian, I said, well, I'm probably going to be a little bit weird. You're going to have to watch out for me. Now, Brian did something that was very good. He he came down and he said, you're not that badly hurt, which is the right thing to say to somebody who's just been eaten by a bear. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) And so these these scars that you... Yes. <laughs> yes. So these lovely scars that you've been looking at, this one was flapped up, and this one was was that deep. And there was this one, and this one, and this one, and they were all bleeding, but they weren't gushing too bad. Anyway, so uh, I said, well, why don't you go find the trail? I'll just stay here. Because we were lost, we were, we, you know, we didn't, and we were at the very steep. So he went and found where our packs, you know, the trail up to where our packs were, and came down to tell me where it was. And I got, he couldn't carry me. It was too steep. I had to do it myself. So it was one of these scramble hand over hand, scramble kind of jobs up to the top. And I remember, you know, the bliss still, you know, the every the color of the light through the leaves and every crunch of the footstep and the sound of the birds and. Just every movement, it was just pristine clear, you know, just very clear. So we got up, we got up to the top, and uh, and then, you know, it was a mess. It needed to be cleaned up and sorted out and needed to, to make uh, bandages and all of that. And he had a very first aid, good first aid kit, so that wasn't a problem. And, um, and then we had to walk down the mountain three hours until we got to the next... Um, the first place, the Tusita Institute, and above Dharamsala, and then from there they had a telephone and they called a they called a, a jeep to come pick me up and take me to the hosp- hospital, Delic Hospital, I think is what it's called. So um, you know, and they they warned them that somebody had just been eaten by a bear and was going to be coming, and they they expected a piece of hamburger to come rolling in the door, <laughs> and instead somebody came in laughing, and they <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't figure out that. Anyway, so they they stitched me up and they shot me up with tetanus and whatnot, and then and then we stayed there. So 
That night was the night before Vesaka Puja, and so the streets had been lined with beggars because beggars came from all over India uh, at the at the pilgrimage places when there were special festival days. And so the next day, which was when His Holiness was going to be uh, coming out of retreat to do to do the to do the um, the Vesaka Puja celebration, was the day that I was otherwise occupied in the hospital, so I couldn't go. And then, and then the bliss did start to wear off, and the pain did start to set in. And I just remember sitting there, and just the tears were just streaming down my face, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out why I was still alive. There wasn't a single reason in the whole world that I could think of why I was alive. It didn't make any sense to me. There was no reason why I should have been alive, why I should have lived through that. And so, anyway, uh, journey continues, and, and then the next day was actually even worse because I had to go to an Indian government hospital to get rabies injections, which were the series of injections in the stomach. And anybody who's been to India and has had the joy of going to an Indian government hospital knows that uh, it's actually worse than a bear. <laughs> <laughs> there was this little room where they gave injections to people and they had this little pot where they would boil the syringes and there would be, you know, there would be too many syringes to actually be submerged underneath the water and they'd throw them in and then there'd be people coming in every 15 seconds and so they'd put the, oh God, so, and then there was this stream of green slime on the wall where they would depress the water and on the wall. So I walked in here Anyway, getting the rabies vaccine was no small task because in India bureaucracy, they're very, oh, it is not in the book that you can get rabies when you have been eaten by a bear. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry. Anyway, there were, there were, I wouldn't, that, that I would, there's no way I would have managed to do that by myself. There's just no way. There was a couple times when I just, I just cracked up and just wailed. I just couldn't, I just had had enough. But uh, the Bodhisattvas manifested and the rabies vaccine manifested and I got into this little room with my vaccine and then thought, oh dear. And then there was this inspiration, divine inspiration. And I looked at this and I looked at the person who was giving the injections and I looked at Brian and I said, you know, it's actually against my religion to have anything that's been in my body that's been in somebody else's body. <laughs> I said, Brian, go get some syringes, please. And he did. He was great. So he went to the clinic and got some, some clean needles. So anyway, so that was that. Anyway, so the things journeyed on and continued, and Brian and I were, were traveling companions for about six weeks. And then the day that I left, well, he went to Pakistan, and I was heading back to Nepal. Uh, I still had this three-month visa. I was on my way to Burma. I had 105 fever. And I thought, oh, God. You know, most of the time in India, when you get sick like that, it just doesn't matter. You just hang out with it and let it burn itself through. But rabies vaccines have a known, a known um, risk of, of uh, encephalitis. And I didn't know what the symptoms were. And this flap wasn't healing. There was still a hole in my head. It wasn't healing. And so I had 105 fever. I was on my own again. I was traveling. And I was very, very sick. And so it's like, you know, the universe somehow just takes care of a person. It worked out. It was, I, I got to where I needed to go, and I had the, I had the mind to, to think. I, I got off the train in Jammu, and I said, I'm sick. And so I went to this little doctor. You know, they have this little, this doctor outside. It, I don't know how they, I, they think they just make them and put them up. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, oh, he said, you have malaria. So I said, oh. I said, well, I... He said, take this medicine, good medicine. I said, well, if you want me to take that medicine, you have to make sure that I'm sick. You have to take a blood test. He said, oh, yes, you're right. <laughs> good thinking. Hmm. <laughs> so 
So I went to the to the best little doctor in town, and I went in there, and uh, the doctor, they took a blood test, and they're looking under the microscope, and they're looking under the microscope, and he gives the test results to the doctor, and the doctor comes out to me. He says, no malaria. He says, typhoid. Go downstairs and take some antibiotics. So I had, I couldn't, I could hardly walk. I mean, I was just about, I, I couldn't walk, basically. I, I was pretty sick. So I went downstairs, and I got the antibiotics for typhoid, and I thought, uh-uh. Can't look under the microscope and tell that I have typhoid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So I thought, well, I, I got, I gotta find out. I gotta find out what's the matter. You know, I gotta know. So I got on the train and I went to Delhi and I had the, the telephone number and address of the East West Clinic and got there and found out I had hepatitis. Well, hepatitis. I know with hepatitis, all you have to do is behave yourself, drink lots. Don't drink any alcohol, and you'll be all right. Hepatitis in, in Nepal, and I and there was a very kind person who was on her way to um, Kenya with a suitcase. She was a nurse, and she had a suitcase full of antiseptic stuff. This little thing still hadn't closed. It still hadn't healed up. And so I talked to her, and she and I made it a promise that she would she would clean it up and swab it up and put antiseptic stuff on it every day for a week and after a week if it still hadn't healed I'd go back into the hospital so she did and it didn't heal up so I went into the hospital it was a, a Canadian clinic and uh, there was a person who was there who was a had been an emergency medical surgeon in the state so he was you know wasn't a problem so he took a cotton swab and put it into my head and pulled out a um, seed pod, which obviously had been left by the bear. And uh, so the seed pod, he pulled it out of my head, and then and then it healed up after that. So, <laughs> so that's so that's that story. So then, so okay, so I I am in Thailand and uh, sick. Still, you know, I I was told, well, if you have hepatitis, she'll be better in six weeks. Well, in six weeks, I could walk for an hour on level ground. I mean, I expected in six weeks I'd be able to climb mountains. That's to me what better meant. But after six weeks, I could walk for an hour at a crawl and then go back to bed to sleep for three hours. That's what that meant. So I was still pretty unwell. So I wanted to just. Uh, recuperate and, and going to this retreat in Burma was out of the question. I just wasn't up for 18 to 20 hours of meditation a day. I couldn't handle it. So I went to Thailand and I went to um, Koh Phangan and I was hanging out on the beaches and I, you know, there was something in my heart. It was like I wasn't into it. You know, all these people were... Um, walking around in the sun, getting stoned, and it's like, I didn't, I mean, it was a beautiful place, but I just, I didn't want to be there, I wanted, I was longing to somehow go find a monastery to go hang out in, and so the people on uh, Kupangam, there's a little um, monastery up there, they gave me the address of, of the, um, the monastery that Christopher Titmus was as a monk, which was actually very nearby, so I went there. And I had a, you know, I knew the Wat Panachat, I had the address there, and I was intending to go. And I had the address of uh, Ajahn Buddha Das's place in uh, Koh Samui, in Ksuan uh, Mok. And I was planning to go there. So I went to this first place, and this first place there was uh, a community of nuns. And they were the first nuns that I'd ever met. And there was, uh, Mechi Patumwan was living there. And, uh, and traveling on your own in Asia, one of the interesting characteristics as a woman is that you actually spend very little time with women because most of the people who you travel with uh, and most of the people who you encounter in Asia are men. So all of a sudden I was surrounded by nuns. And these, and they were young nuns and they were middle-aged nuns and they were ancient nuns and they were, they were all living together, and there was this incredible sense of beauty about their lives. 
simplicity. And it was like this image of it actually is possible to live like this as monks. And so it, it brought um, enormous joy. And it was also very healing to be surrounded by such loving, kind, gentle women. It was really <coughs> medicinal. Very, very healing. But I was the only person in the whole place who spoke any English. And I, I had a... And the, the abbot, he told me that he would welcome me back and I could come and ordain there and he'd give me an alms bowl. And I thought, well, maybe I would. Maybe I would leave and get a longer visa and, and come back there and spend a year. But I had a feeling with the language and with the, the cultural emphasis with uh, the women were... were uh, their practice, even though that was a very good practice place, it was still regarded that the nuns were looking after the monks. They did the cooking. They washed up the dishes. And I had a feeling that my feminist critic conditioning would would arise sooner or later. And I, I, I wouldn't be able to live with that for too long. So I just as an exploration of different places to, to, to be, I thought I'd set, set out on a, on a journey and just go visit some of the other monasteries. So I, I did. I went to Swan Mok. And then I went to Wat Pananachat. And when I got to Wat Pananachat, there was a circuit breakage. <laughs> a fuse melt down. There was some kind of a, of, a, of, a, of a very interesting experience. Because up until that point, I had been in Asia with, with Asian people. And um, in Asia, when you're traveling in an Asian culture, you don't, I didn't. I didn't judge it in terms of my own Western conditioning. I felt that, well, I'm in an Asian culture, and people do things this way. But all of a sudden, for the first time, I was, I was in a monastery where all of the people in the monastery were white men. And it did something very peculiar. <laughs> the, the whole thing, it blew a fuse. Because all of a sudden, all of my very, very strong, powerful, uh, Santa Cruz women's conditioning emerged to the surface, and I, and I, I, it was very interesting because on, on one hand when I went there I felt like, like I'd found home. There was this profound sense of joy and peace and like of being home that was deeper and longer lasting than I've ever experienced before. It was this exquisite sense of, 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 of joy. And on the other hand, absolutely everything was wrong about the place. I thought that the monks had it all wrong, that the village woman should be sitting on the asana and the monks should be sitting on the ground. <laughs> Their practice was much more inspiring. I couldn't understand all this business with the Anjali and none of it made any sense to me. You know, the whole thing to me was wrong. And yet there was a sense of joy, there was a sense of peace, there was a sense of the simplicity of the life, the simplicity of being in a, in a monastic situation with people who had a lot of integrity in their practice. And so the joy gave the context for examining the resistance. And so bit by bit, all of the resistance would come out and I would look at it and I could see that what I was experiencing was my conditioning. That what I re reacted to so strongly was the fact that my conditioning held the things I was seeing as wrong according to certain values that I had. And that the values were based on a, on a world that had a certain importance to it. But the joy touched beyond that and touched beneath that. And so it was possible to resolve that. And so it was like all the, the sense of, of the, whole, the whole thing um, kind of consolidating or being in pieces. There was this, I mean, it was, it was like a nuclear meltdown. I mean, the whole system just kind of came, came apart. And, and what I was left with was this profound sense of, of faith that, that there, there is the aspiration to truth is actually a noble one. And that in my own personal world, 
I felt like my life, the fact that I was alive, was the result, the direct result of the practice that I had done before that. And that having lived through the experience with the bear was was due to the ability to be present while that was happening. Now, the bear might have had other reasons. I don't know what was in his mind. But or or her mind. <laughs> if it was I think if it was a, a, a she bear I would have been et. <laughs> but anyway, there was this very, very strong feeling that I I owed my life to mindfulness. And so that that sense of of um faith and the fact that like all of the things, the issues, the agendas that had been operating for the years prior to that, it's like somehow they, they found their own level. They found their own place of, of um, resting. They weren't pressing anymore. Um, and then it wasn't as if I had a choice. It wasn't as if, well, I'll do this or I'll do this or I'll do this or maybe I'll go back to Santa Cruz and continue working in the chemistry laboratory or, you know, get the job teaching, uh, tutoring, any of that. It was... There wasn't any other choice. It was like at that point, not to go forth would have been running away. So I, you know, people say, well, did you choose? I, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be the right language that I would describe. It wasn't a choice. It was an absence of choice. And then the benevolence of the universe sends its emissaries at the right moment. And Ajahn Amaro happened to be visiting Wat Panachat just as all of this was happening and he was Ajahn Pasano had asked him if uh, he'd like to talk about his experience in England and what the situation was there and Ajahn Amaro being charismatic and uh, uh, very uh, fluid and flowing was talking quite a lot and speaking quite a lot (laughs) about (laughs) about the nuns that there were nuns living at Amavati. <laughs> and were there any questions? Well, as a matter of fact, there were. So I, I believe I, I grilled him a lot about what this whole business with nuns was about. And um, and then it was just clear. I mean, I just I didn't have any doubt. I was I was going for it. So I wrote a couple letters to Amavati, which they never received. And I wrote a letter home to my family telling them that I was coming home but then intending to go to England. So I came back and said hello and goodbye to family and friends and then made my way to England. However, there's one other story which I don't often tell, which I think I will, because it's also part of this English gentlemanness. Brian, dear Brian, there was a part of the story that Brian taught me that I wouldn't have managed to survive if he hadn't. You see, coming from uh, a Californian family, you know, it's a very affectionate family. You know, we are cuddly and touching and hugging family. And that's not the dumb thing in a monastic life, okay? So, Brian, bless his cotton sock, for six weeks, you know, being with the same person that you've gone through an experience like that is actually very helpful because you can process it. But, like, there were times when I was just dying for a hug, you know? or to have somebody hold my hand or something warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and <laughs> warm and fuzzy weighing less than a ton. And an English gentleman does not do such things. And I remember sitting there and, you know, I'd plead and I'd beg and I'd try and bargain and I'd try everything I could absolutely no way no way and I remember just one night I just was sitting there the tears were streaming down my face and I was just thinking well Brian how is it that you express your love and affection and he says well I guess it's in the things I say But you see, I, I mean, there are, there are many things about coming to a monastery and monastic life that are challenging. 
But that one was actually quite an, quite an obstacle. And I remember asking Ajahn Amaro, well, are you allowed to hug? And he said, no. And I thought, oh, but I guess I'll manage. Because, like, what Brian showed me was that actually it is possible. I mean, here's a person who, for six weeks, we spent 24 hours a day together. You know, he came with me to every single one of the 19 injections that I had. You know, there was love. I just wasn't receiving it. And again, there was like this having to change one's receptive, to to get something that I wasn't actually able to feel. It wasn't that it wasn't there. I just wasn't able to pick up on it. And so this whole business of, of the, the problem isn't so much in the, in the, in the world, in the way the world uh, shows, but in our ability to receive it. But the, the reason why the story is, I mean, it's, it's um, obviously it, it, it's, it's an interesting story, it's a good story, but it's like there's some, there's some very fundamental principles of Dharma that come through here. It's not just about me and my own little personal journey. But it's like the work that we do in a meditation retreat in terms of opening up to things which are difficult, it's not insignificant, I can promise you. You know, in terms of, of making it possible to deal with things when the chips are really on floor. And so, you know, people feel that, well, my knees, you know, I can't handle it, or my heart's hurting, or everything feels a bit jumbled, or, you know, I feel dissociated, disconnected, or I can't connect with what you're talking about, space and light. All I'm feeling is chaos and confusion, you know. It's like hanging out with the stuff when it's difficult, when it's frightening, when it's not easy, and finding a way of just being present with it. It's not insignificant work that we're doing here. And my own little story of that, to me, is just, um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell it if, if I didn't feel that there wasn't a way that it could also help encourage you. That, that even though the retreat situation seems like such an incredibly ideal situation, you know, where we are well loved and looked after and cared for, the kind of practice that's taking place here is not to be underestimated. So for, for myself, my own journey has unfolded in the way that it has and the decisions have come about in the way that they have. And I'm happy with the life that I have and the, and the support and the friends and the teachers. And yet every one of us needs to find that, you know, needs to find a way to make the world, the context in which their practice unfolds, needs to find a way that their, their heart can blossom in truth and understanding. And to realize that, you know, for me, the experience of having the, one's head in the mouth of a bear, and that's a real experience, but it's actually a metaphor for what a lot of life is actually about. <coughs> you know, yours might not be black and fuzzy and weighing a ton, you know, but it might be something else. And that's actually, that's real, that. Pain is real. But the thing about that experience, which also the whole thing points to, is, is that it's like whether or not life is going well for you, it's still possible to experience freedom. Now, I think, actually, mosquitoes, are more difficult than bears. <laughs> you know, the little irritating things that just nag and pull and kind of bite you a little bit, they're actually much more difficult than bears because with a bear, you're not going to fight, at least I didn't. But with a mosquito, you think at least you got a chance. You don't, but you think you do. 
you know. And so learning how to find that sense of surrender and that sense of opening up to things, you know, the, the little things, the irritations, you know, somebody coughing or somebody snoring or somebody, they, they, they're not bowing the right way or, you know, the little picky things that are just so trivial that just drive us up the wall and we feel so uh, convinced that we have a reason to be upset about them. Or the nagging doubt, I can't do it, I can't do it, I'm not strong enough, I don't have enough paramitas. I've got to go to India, maybe next lifetime. You know, this nagging, with it, you know, the, the, the blur in the heart, you think it's never going to resolve, it's never going to end, I'm never going to feel connected. I'm never going to know what they're talking about. You know, and just to keep returning to that place of, of trusting, Trusting that there is truth, that there is a path, that there is awareness and freedom which is actually not dependent on the conditions one experiences, that this is a path of liberation, and that's what each one of us are endeavoring to do. That's enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.